Amen. Let's get to it. Psalm uh, 25. This is a psalm of David. Now, just so you know, David didn't write all the psalms, uh, but he did write a bunch of them. Uh, some of them were Asaph. Some of them were by uh, other people, uh, David's sons, other priests. So, but David did write a bunch. Of, this is a psalm of David. And you know this because it starts off of David. Verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust, or in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not mine enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. God is upright. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and He teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn and be gracious to me, for I am afflicted and lonely. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Amen. Since uh, September of 2020, so going back about two years, we have studied our roles in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, in which we are sent by Jesus into the world to make disciples of Jesus, teaching them to obey all of His commands, teaching them the way that, that leads to life, and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we, we walk through the Sermon on the Mount to learn what is this way that, that leads to life? What is the way of righteousness? The way that we are told to go into the world and, and teach others about. We, we've studied and we've considered the exhortations and the warnings of both James and Jude, both of whom are, are brothers of Jesus and servants of Jesus, and both of whom wrote to the churches who were scattered abroad. 
James challenged us to consider the trials and tribulations of this life and to count them all as joy. To rejoice when we meet them, because when we meet them with faith in God, they have a perfecting effect on us, making us complete and whole and lacking in nothing. James gives us a passionate plea to not let our faith just be words. Christ did not suffer, church. He did not die in order to usher in a merely confessional kingdom. His kingdom is a kingdom of faith. And faith without works is dead. So James tells us to not let our faith be dead. He tells us instead to let our faith explode from us out of joy into good works. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then in Jude, he challenges us and warns us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Biblical gospel truth is not new. It is old. (laughs) Because truth is old. People come to you saying new things, I would get immediately suspicious. Biblical gospel truth is not old, it is not shaken, and is not moved by shifting winds of culture and political pressures. The Word of God does not rise and fall with governments or economies. The Word of God is not beholden to elections or referendums. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God is Forever. And so we must be careful, Jude says, to avoid trailing off into apostasy, to avoid falling after following after false teachers who would twist and pervert the grace of God into sinfulness. We've been through a lot in the scripture. Altogether, over 80 Sundays on these. these topics that I've just addressed, 80 sermons preached. Now, my sermons, because I write them in software, I can, I can tell you that my sermons average anywhere between 3,500 to 5,000 words on average, give or take. And that's written, no telling how many I've spoken, because I tend to deviate from, <laughs> from what I've written sometimes. Just going on the low end of that estimate, 3,500 words or so, we're, we're looking at over 280,000 words written. Considering that the average novel these days is about 90,000 words, that's the equivalent of three whole books on these subjects that I've written and preached. Three whole books on these subjects that you have heard and heeded. Now, I'm saying that because I just want you to understand, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. I think I mentioned last week that as we have been walking through these these scriptures, even going back to the the Great Commission and the Sermon on the Mount and and James's five chapters, and that one little chapter in Jude, there have been times when it felt like it was just grueling and the word has stung a bit. It hasn't all been easy to swallow. See, the Lord wants a people for Himself. 
And we are to be set apart from the world, different in almost every way. Different culturally, different professionally, different personally. You know, we do business a little different than the rest of the world. We do friendship a little different than the rest of the world. We do family a little different than the rest of the world. We are, by design and decree, a peculiar people, to be sure. Sometimes our flesh and our desires of our flesh, they are confronted by the sword of God's Word as it slices the truth from the lies and light from dark. That's not always comfortable for us, especially when light comes into the darkness, especially when lies are confronted with truth. And sometimes we we can look at the Word of God. I don't know if, if you're like me when you read it and, and you, you see conviction in it and you just, sometimes I'm crushed by the weight of my own iniquity. And, and to be honest, I, I, I believe that is a, a mercy from God toward me, toward all of us, to allow us to see just how desperately we're really in need of Christ. I never got to a point where I was on a pedestal and thought, you know, I've got this. I don't, I don't need to be saved. I don't need to go run to the cross with almost every breath. I, I, I would fear for my own salvation because my righteousness is as filthy rags. It is only by seeing just how desperately I need Him that I, I run to Him over and over again. There are times in our Christian peculiarity, where that brings us into conflict with the world around us. Jesus told us, in this world you will have tribulation. He said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. James told us to rejoice when trials come. So we know that persecution will come from outside of us. We know that that the world around us will not always be friendly, and, and sometimes that is our fault. Sometimes we have to be, uh, take a stand for righteousness. Sometimes we have to be unfriendly to the world. Another one of James's great warnings to us tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's James 4. If I had to sum all of that up, all of everything that we've been through in the last, you know, since September of 2020, In the Word of God, I would say that the joy of the Lord is serious business. In this church, we are serious about serving the Lord. And we are serious about our joy in doing it. I mean that. I don't even want your money if it's not given gladly. I don't want your service if it's not given gladly. And neither does the Lord. We're serious about serving God and we're serious about our joy in doing it. We serve Him. We love Him. We surrender to Him because it increases our joy to do so. It makes us glad. The first great commandment, love the Lord with everything you've got. You know, you, you cannot do that without joy in doing it. You cannot love Him and just pay lip service to Him because He knows your heart. He sees the difference between resentful duty and joyful desire. 
and did this. That's weird. That's true also for the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't, you can't truly love your neighbor without joy in doing so. Amen. I love the illustration that, that John Piper uses. He tells us, he says, gentlemen, imagine that you, uh, it's your anniversary and, and you want to do something for your wife. So you go to the florist and you get some flowers and you call your, her favorite restaurant and you make reservations to the restaurant and, and you go home and then you go and you present the flowers to her and you say, hey, here, I got these for you. Now put on something nice. I'm going to take you to dinner. And of course, she's a humble, gracious, loving wife. And she says, oh, honey, you shouldn't have. And so you say, well, you're probably right. <laughs> but it's our anniversary and I felt like I had to. So here, I hope you enjoy it. Or you say, no, no. No, I needed to do this. I wanted to do this because it's our anniversary and nothing would make me happier than to spend the evening with you. She's not going to look at you and say, oh, you're just so concerned about you. You just want you to be happy. No, my joy in her is glorifying to her. Amen. It's the same with serving the Lord. It's the same with loving your neighbor. There's a difference between resentful duty and joyful desire. Over the past two years, we've talked about some broad and uncomfortable themes like Christian suffering and how to follow Jesus. And sometimes that following is a call to take up your cross and die. We die to ourselves daily. We talked about the way of righteousness, how it is hard. And those are Jesus' words, they're not mine. He said, the way is narrow and hard that leads to life. But the way that leads to death is broad and easy. So we're going to come into some conflict on this hard way with some internal forces like temptation and guilt over sin. Remember James said, don't, don't let anyone say when he is tempted that he's being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted and He doesn't tempt anyone. You're tempted by your own desires. At times, maybe even at the same time, we will come into conflict with external forces like persecution and trials and hardships and calamities. There is no shortage of hardship and calamity in this congregation. Amen. 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 But Jesus says, rejoice when you are persecuted, for so they treated the prophets. James said, rejoice. For the trials that you endure produce patience, and patience has a perfecting work. Like I said, Christians are people of joy. David said, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus said, I'm telling you all these things. I'm telling you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then James says, count it all joy. Amen. Amen. And that's what led me to our text this morning. That's my introduction. I was thinking about this long road we've been down and, and praying. And man, a lot has happened since way back in September 2020 when we were talking about the Great Commission. 
you know, dad, dad passed. We came through a pandemic and a snow apocalypse and elections and, and all that. It's been, it's been fun. <laughs> it's been a long road. I was thinking about this road we've been down and praying, and I, I felt a general thankfulness to God for His goodness towards us in His Word. You may read this particular psalm, Psalm 25, and you may wonder to yourself, where is the joy in a psalm like this? I mean, look at David's pleas. Look at his situation. In in, in verse 2, he's anxious about his reputation. He's worried that if he fails, his enemies will gloat. And you can see the root of that worry. It's, It's not really his own personal reputation he's worried about. He's worried about God's reputation They will gloat over me and say, where is your God? I mean, David expressed that same feeling in Psalm 3 when he said, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no help for him in God. He's saying, I'm your servant, Lord. And if I I fail and my enemies win, that makes you look bad. Help me triumph for the sake of your name. And then back in Psalm 25, verse 19, he says, Look at how many my foes are against me. Look at how violently they hate me. These are conflicts that are brought on by external sources, things outside of of David, David's enemies all around, the world camped all around him, trying to bring him down. And I know that there are some today, right here, who are facing some external conflicts. And you're trying to do the right thing. You've got that guy at work who just won't let up or that, that neighbor who just, just won't let up. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to do the God-honoring, Christ-exalting, joy-producing thing and you're concerned that they just won't see it like that. You're concerned that if you trust God and you, you look to God and, and if you fail, they're going to gloat over you. They're going to say how foolish you were for trusting in the Lord. You trusted in God for nothing. I mean, now I know y'all are all really spiritual, but don't we all get that way? Don't we all feel that? Lord, if I go out of here and I step out in faith on what you've promised, if this goes south, I trusted in you for nothing. I don't want them to say that. That's what David's going through. He's also dealing with attacks from all different sides. Look how many my foes are. And we get that way. It seems like if it's not one thing, it's five other things. You know, the bills are late and the car's broken. People at work, they're out to get me. The roof is leaking and the neighbors are clearly godless pagans. You can feel like we have to carry the weight of the whole world on our shoulders and we've got to fight off attacks from every side. Lord, I just feel like everyone is just waiting for me to fail so they can gloat. Where is your God? Am I the only one that feels that way sometimes? Where's the joy in that? (laughs) The whole world's against me. Then there's inside conflict. You know, we see the same thing in in this, this psalm, the stuff... Coming from the outside isn't enough. The stuff coming from inside us ought to be. Verse 7 and verse 11, David's grieving over his own sin and transgressions. 
In verse 7, he says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. In verse 11, he says, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Verse 16, he says that he is lonely and afflicted. His heart is greatly troubled and he is in distress. These are internal conflicts. These are internal things that that just try to rob us of joy and try to steal us of our strength. Don't we often find ourselves right here along with David in those kinds of struggles? We grieve over our sin and we wonder, will God forgive? I know I wouldn't. How many times, how often, and how much is too much? In the middle of our struggles, don't don't we feel alone and distressed? Like I said, you you may look at this psalm and you may wonder, where's the joy, Jeff? So far, all I've heard about is affliction and distress and loneliness and enemies and guilt and shame, and none of that brings joy. And I would answer you, you're right. The joy in this psalm is centered exactly where it should be. It is centered on something that cannot be shaken, moved, eroded, or destroyed. It is centered squarely on the goodness of God. And I'll be honest, there are many places in this psalm where God's goodness is on display. I just want to focus on three of them this morning for the sake of time and clarity. Starting back in verse 3, we see goodness that does not disappoint. David makes a statement about those who wait for the Lord. He says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. This this waiting that that David talks about, this this waiting, it describes something like, it's it's not like sitting in a, a waiting room and just waiting for something to happen, like you're just sitting idle waiting for something to happen. It's more like a waiter at a restaurant who works for tips. The kind of waiter serves in the hope and expectation that the customer will be gracious and reward their good service with money. The word that's translated here as wait, it literally means to hope in. It's, a, it's an active kind of service with an expectation of reward, thus hope. An expectation, a a good expectation. Not for money. We don't expect money, like at a restaurant, but for heavenly, eternal rewards. And David makes it clear that, that those who wait on the Lord, those who serve Him, will not serve Him in vain. They don't put their hope and their expectation in Him only to be let down. Because God always comes through in the end. The Lord is good. He does not disappoint. Hope in Him is hope that does not disappoint. And this is reason for rejoicing. In Romans 5, Paul echoes this. Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into His grace, this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And guess what? Hope does not put us to shame. And there's a reason, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We will not be put to shame because of our hope in the Lord our joyful expectation in the Lord. He always delivers. And then Philippians 1, verse 18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I'm glad. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, or to me is to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hope in the goodness of God is hope that does not disappoint, and for that we should rejoice. God is good to us, church. He is so very good to us. He has a goodness that guides. Verse 8, David transitions from speaking to God, O Lord, to speaking about God. He goes from the second person to the third person. He starts, stop, he transitions from asking things of God to declaring things about God. He says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenants and His testimonies. God is good to us in guiding us even and especially out of our sin. It is not that sin is a qualification for God's guidance but that sin is not an obstacle for God's guidance. Isn't that a glorious truth? Your sin is not an obstacle for God's guidance. He will still lead you always and ever to the cross. David declares that the Lord instructs sinners in the way. He's shown the way in Christ, and He calls sinners to salvation in Christ he is good to guide us in our sin always back to the cross, always back to the completed work of Jesus. And that's for sinners and believers alike. Amen. 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 I'm not saying we go to the cross to get saved every day. We go to the cross to remind ourselves that we've been saved. <laughs> Some of you need to remind yourself you've been saved. You've been purchased by the blood. God is good in guiding us to the cross. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He guides us to Jesus. And it is good that he guides us to Jesus. It's the humble who come to the Lord who say, Help me, save me, forgive me. And the Lord is good to guide us in that righteousness. You know, we, we stumble and we fall along the way, saints. Amen. Don't we? We get our knees banged up and our elbows get skint. But He guides us always to our redemption that has been purchased by Christ. And then verse 10 is a remarkable promise. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast and faithfulness 
for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. The promise is that God will continually reveal and apply His steadfast love, His mercy and His faithfulness, His truth in our lives. You know the passage, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. He is good to us. We, we read this, and, and I don't know about you, but I read this, I imagine a discouraged believer who says, God, your, your way is hard. It seems to be too much for me. David declares that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. This means that when you walk any path with Him, whether you walk with Him into ministry or into a job or into marriage or into service, He walks with you in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm going to trip. And He is there in steadfast love and faithfulness to pick me up. So we rejoice that where God leads, He guides. If I put it in a a bit of a cliche, where, where God brings you, He will guide you. If He brings you to it, He'll guide you through it. So what is so important for us to understand is that He guides us with steadfast love and faithfulness. We don't always get it right, but He is still faithful, and He will guide us back in love. The goodness of God that guides. One more, and and then I'll close. We have joy in God's goodness that forgives. Verse 11, David asks God to pardon his many sins. He says, pardon my guilt, for it is great. But he is confident to take this request to the Lord because of the Lord's reputation. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your reputation, O Lord. That's that's the same plea that Moses made in the wilderness when he pled with God not to destroy the children of Israel for their disobedience. Back in Numbers 14. Moses appeals to the Lord's reputation. He says, Lord, if you do this, if you destroy them, if you disinherit them and you you wipe them out and you send pestilence to them, won't the Egyptians hear about this? And won't they say that you weren't able to bring your people to the land that you promised? And so you killed them in the wilderness. So Moses basically said the same thing that David did, just with a lot more words. For the sake of your great name, Lord, don't do this. For the sake of your great name, Lord, have mercy. For the sake of your great name, Lord, stay the judgment. Pardon their sin. In 1 John, we find an application of this principle of God's goodness in forgiving. 1 John 1, verse 8, the apostle says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, that that sounds pretty gloomy, doesn't it? But it's a necessary truth that makes verse 19 so wonderful, or verse 9 so wonderful. He says, if we confess our sins, so we've all got sin. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's not a liar. (laughs) He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's so astonishing about that to me is that phrase, faithful and just. He is faithful to forgive, 
which means that He is reliable to forgive sins when we humbly come before Him and ask. He's reliable. You can count on Him to do it. Well, that, you can't say that about a whole lot of people. You can count on Him. You can count on God to forgive. You can, he's reliable. He is faithful to forgive sins. And, and that's not it. That's not all. He goes further. He is faithful and just. Meaning, not only is He reliable to forgive sin, not only can you trust that He'll do it, but it's right and righteous and just that He does it. Jesus paid the price for our sin. He purchased your forgiveness. It's blood-bought. It would be unjust for God to deny any repentance. It would be unjust for Him to say, no, not that one. For anyone that comes to him pleading on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross and say, Lord, because of what Christ did, please forgive me. It would be unjust. And God is not an unjust God. And for this, perhaps the greatest goodness on display in Psalm 25, we should be especially joyful. Which brings me to where we began this morning. The Christian life is not an easy one. I think we've seen that over the last two years, walking through the particular scriptures that we have been walking through. The way is hard that leads to life. There will be trials and struggles and false teachers and other dangers along the way. But all of the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. His goodness towards us strengthens us and it brings us joy as it did for David. So I'll leave you with David's words in verse 20. He said, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. At the end of the psalm, after David laid out his internal and external conflicts and all the the woes, and and he lamented his, his circumstances, I am lonely, I am afraid, I am distressed, I am guilty, my enemies are all around, what help do I have? That's essentially what he's saying He is able to say, I take refuge in you. And we know what he means by that based on the declarations that he's made about God already in the psalm. What he means by that, I take refuge in you, is that I rest in the safety of your character. I rest in the safety of your goodness. Turmoil and anxiety over turmoil and doubt over turmoil is not from God. In fact, it is so not from God, it is so not characteristic of someone who hopes in God that Jesus commanded us to not be anxious. How in the world? I get anxious when my tablespooner is not in the proper spot in the morning when I go to make my coffee. I need my tablespoon to measure out my my creamer. And if that's not in the right spot, I get all kinds of anxiety. Little things. And that's a sin. (laughs) It is so sinful. Right? Where is my refuge when my tablespoon measurer is missing? Where is my refuge when they call me and say it's, it's malignant? 
Where's my refuge when the car place says it's going to be a $4,000 repair? My refuge had better be in the goodness of God because that is solid and unshakable. I just, there's a, the Christian life's not easy. I don't think David had it easy. You can read the Psalms and know that, boy, he went through it, and a lot of it was self-inflicted, the stuff he went through. Isn't ours too? Amen. <laughs> and at the end of the day, he could say, Lord, I, I just take my refuge in you. All of this, and I'm, I'm going to put my hope and my, my rest in you. We are not to be anxious people. I just want you to know that God is good to us, and we should rest in his goodness. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for this psalm that you've given us from the hand of David, Lord, as he penned it. Lord, we know that he must have been facing some trials just as we face trials. Lord, thank you for the example you have given us in your word. Thank you for assuring him as you are assuring us through his words, Lord, that you are there, you are ever-present, always leading, always guiding us back to the cross when we fail, always assuring us that your, your ways are steadfast love, your paths are, are faithful, always assuring us, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive. Father, we thank you for your great and precious word. Help it to be light and life to us and seed in our hearts. Let it spring up with with joy within us, Father. Send us away from here as Christians, Lord. Send us away from here to bear your name, to be salt and light in a world that is desperately needing of it, Lord. Send us out from here with joy. We shall go out with joy, Father, in your precious and holy name we pray. Bring us back safely at the appointed time to gather and worship and praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.